Hello and welcome everyone to this episode of the STEMcast podcast. The goal of our podcast is to create an accessible resource for students at all levels of STEM to be mentored by leading professionals and advance their careers. Your hosts for today's podcast are Albert and myself, Aditya. Now, cancer is one of the leading causes of mortality around the world and in Canada with nearly half of uh, Canadians getting cancer in their lifetime. Now, because of that, new and effective treatments for cancer are desperately needed and today, we have a special guest, somebody who will give us some insight into uh, the exciting field of cancer research. And that guest is Dr. John Bell. So Dr. Bell, it's great to have you. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much for having me on your, uh, your show. This is great. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming. Uh, I'll just start off by asking if you could briefly introduce yourself. Just tell us a little bit about what you do, where you work. Sure. Yeah, so I'm a, a senior scientist at the Cancer Center here in Ottawa. And so, uh, I trained and got a PhD many years ago, and then I worked around the world at various places uh, to do further training in what are called postdocs. And ultimately, I got a position at McGill, and then I moved here to Ottawa many years ago. And uh, so I work at the Cancer Center, and my day job is to, is to try to find uh, new strategies for the treatment of cancer. Yeah, so could you be a little more, could you go into a little more detail about what your lab does, what the focus of your lab is? Sure. So the way my lab works is that uh, I, I hire uh, people who are professional scientists or uh, I also have a lot of students who come work with me um, working on their master's or their PhDs. And a lot of people who've got PhDs and come work with me as what are called postdoctoral fellows. And what we do is we work as a team uh, every day to try to solve questions that we think are important to the, the cancer problem. And one of our main focuses is really trying to understand the differences between a normal healthy tissue and a tumor or a cancer. And the, the goal of this work is that if we could find something that was selective and killed only the cancer and not the normal tissue, uh, we'd be much better off. Because currently now we use uh, radiation therapy and chemotherapy and they both have activity against cancers. But unfortunately, as you well know, if I said to you, I have a friend who's going through chemotherapy, you'd immediately think of someone who lost their hair was immunosuppressed and you know had lost weight, and that's because the chemotherapy attacks not only the tumor but also their normal tissues, and there's a very narrow window of selectivity. So what we're trying to do is say, well, there's some differences between cancers and normal cells. If we can find those differences, then we could target a therapy that only attacks the cancer and not the normal tissues, and we get rid of all the side effects and have a more effective therapy. So that's really what we're trying to do. Uh, on a day-to-day -day basis is try to tease out the differences between them and then to um, use those use that information to develop new therapeutics. Thanks for that. That's uh, really interesting. And what contributions have you guys made in the past, both throughout your career and in the recent past? In your recent past, are there any major breakthroughs or major discoveries that you guys have contributed to? Well, I, I think where we've added some really uh, good understanding to the field is that when we studied the differences between cancer cells and normal cells and look for genetic differences between them, we began to find there were certain characteristics of cancers uh, that made them potentially targetable. And, and the one thing that we've discovered was that, uh, so, so actually take the story back a little bit, you and I are still here alive on this planet today because we have very sophisticated immune systems that allow us to fight infections. And, and the immune system works in many ways. Uh, one of the ways that it works is as soon as you get infected with a virus or a bacteria, each cell in your body triggers a response and starts to develop uh, programs 
to fight that infection of that pathogen. Cancers are, are different than normal tissues in that they, they want to be immortal. They want to live forever. Uh, and so they're very greedy in a sense. And so to become immortal, they give away some of their, uh, their genetic baggage so that they can continue to grow and not be stopped in their growth. And what we discovered was that the same things they throw away to become immortal make them weak and susceptible to infection by viruses. And once we recognized that, we thought, well, can we engineer viruses now that will grow in cancer cells, be parasites of cancer cells, but not grow in normal tissues? And that's exactly what we've been doing for, for many years now and becoming more and more sophisticated in how we develop these little biological machines, as, they were, as you might call them, uh, to become things that can go in the body and find cancers and grow in them, but not grow in normal tissues. And so, you know, my lab has spent a lot of time uncovering um, these mechanisms, but now I think more recently, we're starting to evolve and develop these viruses to be even more sophisticated so that they actually have better ability to kill cancers inside people. So I, I think that's really what I would say would be, would be our trademark. Right, and obviously with new research being conducted all the time, I'm sure the field is, of cancer research has changed over the course of the career. Uh, have, how have you seen that the field has changed over your time working on uh, in cancer research? Yeah, great question. You know, and, and I did start this a long time ago, as you can tell by the color of my hair. But <laughs> when I first started, uh, we didn't know a lot about what's called the molecular biology of cancer. We understood sort of how cancers look, but we didn't really understand how inside the cell things were happening to make the cancers. And there was a couple of major uh, breakthroughs in the field over the last 30 years that have changed the way we approach science. One of these is, is the ability to sequence our genetic information. So before we sort of knew we had chromosomes and we understood in a broad sense how they work, but now with more sophisticated sequencing technologies, we can tell right down to a single nucleotide the, the similarities and differences between you and me. And once we had that information, then we can start to look at what's different about the genetics of a cancer cell versus a normal cell. And that really was a tremendous breakthrough in the field because it allowed us to begin to make therapeutics that could differentiate between a genetically distinct tumor versus a normal tissue. And that was one huge important step forward. But the second one, which I think has been even more profound, has been the recognition that our immune systems are not only great at fighting the virus infections and bacterial infections, but we can mobilize them or use them or tune them to also fight cancer. And once we recognize that we can develop what are called immunotherapies, we could actually use a patient's immune system to fight the cancer, that has changed the field of cancer uh, therapy tremendously. And now we're seeing people who have very advanced cancer still have good responses because we find ways to mobilize their immune system to attack their cancer and eliminate it. And then also have a memory of that cancer so the cancer can't come back, the immune system will attack it again. Now, that's been a great breakthrough, but it, of course it doesn't work in all patients. And so now the whole field's moving towards, well, if we can, now that we've got this toehold, can we now expand how these immunotherapies work so that it works for every patient? And that's really what I think what's going to happen in the, in the near future. Right. And on the topic of new immunotherapies, uh, are, can you share some new and exciting treatments that you know are being made available to patients right now? Yeah, one that I'm really excited about uh, that, that we were involved in bringing to Canada was something called CAR-T therapy. And this is uh, an acronym we use to describe it. And, and so as you probably know, your immune system has two major arms. It has an antibody-based humoral response 
and a cellular-based response or T-cell response. And what people have figured out is that these T-cells, which attack infected cells or cancer cells, can be engineered and directed towards particular kinds of cells. We can use them now as, as, as living therapeutics because they can grow and divide. And so uh, by engineering T-cells to recognize specific um, phenot uh, characteristics of cancer cells, we can actually grow these cells outside of the body and then infuse them into the patient and let them go around the patient and hunt out the tumor cells. So this has been really effective uh, in the States. Uh, a lot of patients are being treated in the States with this approach. And so what we did is we, we worked together with a, a, a great group of scientists and clinicians across the country and with funding from a, an organization called BioCanerX that I formed to create the ability to, to manufacture these therapeutics in Canada and, and give them to patients here in Canada. Now, right now we have them specifically specifically for patients with uh, acute lymphocytic leukemia, but also some kinds of lymphoma. And we're now carrying out clinical studies across the country, testing these CAR therapies, CAR T th therapies as they're called, in patients. And, and that's gonna be, I think, great because before this was available, Canadians didn't have access to this therapy and they would have to go down to the United States and pay maybe a million dollars to try to get treated. And now we've brought it to Canada and uh, we're, we're, we're spreading that out across the country so that Canadians have access to this. And there'll be new developments in this whole space. It's evolving almost on a daily basis. And so we're pretty excited about how that's happened. Uh, I think the combination of that plus our virus therapeutics is gonna be really exciting because we feel that we can, we can engineer them to be synergistic. So the virus goes in and affects the tumor and then the T cell is called in by the virus and attacks the tumor as well. So I think these things are gonna be really tremendous advantages, advances in the next uh, few years. What about, for example, you talked about CAR T cell therapies. What about, are there any drawbacks to this therapy, toxicity or um, other drawbacks that, we, that you guys have seen in patients? Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, as with any new therapy, uh, it takes a while to figure out exactly how to use it correctly. And certainly in the first few patients who got treated, we did see some significant problems. Uh, there's something called a cytokine storm, which basically means that your, your immune system's gone out of control. So by putting in these very potent immune uh, cells, we sometimes created within the patient uh, too much inflammation or inflammatory reactions. And that would lead to sometimes death. It, was, it, it could be toxic. But as time went on, and we understood how these things work, we're beginning to evolve them control them in a better way. So they're becoming much more um, easy to, to administer and effective without having really toxicity. But it's a great question because these are all experimental therapeutics that we've designed in animals. It doesn't mean that we know how they're gonna behave in people and we're all different. So uh, it's really part of the research is, is not only getting it to the patient, but then following the patient and understanding how they react and using that information to make a better therapeutic. So, um, I'm really optimistic that down the road, we'll get a much better control on this and they'll be not only effective with more patients, but eliminate all the side effects that we sometimes see. Yeah, so you talked a little bit about how you also do stuff outside of the lab and how you monitor patients and all that separate from the research that you do. Could you talk a little bit about more, um, what other activities you do outside the lab um, apart from the research side? Yeah, well, my job, I, I don't get to go in the lab anymore, to be honest, because <laughs> my students keep me out. Don't go in, you're going you're gonna to break something. Uh, so my job now is really all about um, 
trying to get more money for research. And so I spent a lot of time uh, writing grants applications to organizations to try to bring money to help pay for the research, writing papers about what we've done and, and having those published. Uh, but another activity that I spent a lot of time on is, is developing the technology to commercialization. And, you know, you can have a great idea and you can have a, a cure for cancer, but if you don't get it out to, for, to patients where they can be accessible, then you might as well have done nothing. Done nothing. So recognizing that many years ago, I've been involved in founding a number of companies because, uh, and you may ask, why, why do you have to go that route? You know, doing research in, in the lab costs a lot of money. My budget is somewhere around a million dollars a year, but to do research in people costs a lot more than that. And so to get something that you test in an animal is expensive, but then to go and manufacture that, get it out and test it in people can cost you tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. And so recognizing that was the case and wanting these things to get out there and test it as quickly as possible, we've formed a couple of companies. It's been a lot of fun. They're called startups uh, where you sort of build something from the ground up. And basically I've learned a lot about, you know, how to raise funds for these companies, how companies run, um, and, and how, uh, you know, the challenges in trying to do research in, in humans in the heterogeneous population that we are. And, and so it's been a lot of fun. So we formed a couple of different companies uh, and the most recent one's called Turnstone Biologics, which is um, doing really well and advancing some of the therapies we've been developing in the lab. Yeah, so you talked a little bit about startups. Um, could you talk about where your startups are today, where they've reached, what they've done? Yeah. So. Um, our first one was called Generex. Uh, it was actually named after a scientist, Edward Jenner. Edward Jenner was the fellow who discovered the smallpox vaccine back in the, in the 1800s. And, and so we were using a version of that vaccine as a therapeutic, so we called the company Generex. Um, and it, it managed to advance that first therapeutic all the way through uh, several lines of, of uh, clinical trials. And ultimately, it was purchased by a company in Korea. And they're now using it to uh, test again further in, in patients to see if that original therapy is going to be effective. We formed a second one, as I mentioned, Turnstone Biologics, which is really advancing a couple of different platforms that uh, were from my lab and labs of some of my colleagues across the country. And that right now is, is again doing trials in patients, and uh, it's, it's raised a lot of money for the research through partnerships with other companies, like uh, uh, one of the major companies, pharmaceutical companies in the world is called Takeda. And Decatur Pharmaceuticals has done a, a deal with us now to try to help advance this therapeutic through clinical studies. And, and so the company has worked uh, in different ways. One way is to, is to raise money, as I said, but also uh, to help train people in Canada to know how to work in the biotechnology industry, because it's a very complex thing. There's things from project management, clinical studies, manufacturing, the science, all these things. And so our companies have, I think, been great in that they've actually got Canadian people employed and, and launched in a, in a career uh, in biotechnology. And could you talk a little bit about, since you have a lot of experience with startups, the process of how does an idea go from the whiteboard to the lab, to the clinic, and so on later on, and the partnerships along the way? And all that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I like to say that the science is a team sport and it really, in my mind, is the only way to make discoveries. I mean, back in the day, Isaac Newton made a discovery when the apple fell on his head sort of thing. That doesn't happen anymore. It's too sophisticated. Science is so complex that really, I don't think any one person or any one scientist can, 
can really have an impact. You really can have an impact if you work as teams. So my lab has about, um, you know, maybe uh, up to 20 people in it who are all bright people from around the world who've come to work with us. We have people from, uh, you know, Sri Lanka, uh, Iran, um, Europe, lots of places in Europe, across Canada, United States, who come to work with us. And so it makes a great team of, of people who are all thinking towards a problem and, and trying, to, trying to find solutions to it. So that's the first thing is, is building a great team. And I have great colleagues as well who are also scientists like uh, Dr. Carolina Ilko, uh, Dr. Rebecca Auer, uh, Jean Simon Diallo. These are all people who've worked with me for many years uh, developing various aspects, their own research programs. And we tend to work together like this to try to make sure that we get, get good synergy. So after you, you, you so you, it's exactly as you described. We go to the whiteboard, or back in the good old days, the chalkboard, and we go there and we draw a couple of pictures about thoughts and ideas, and we come up with hypotheses. And then we design experiments that will test those hypotheses, which is not completely trivial sometimes. You, sometimes people do experiments all around, but not actually test what you're trying to find out. And so you design an experiment that you think will test the idea, and you design it in such a way that you can interpret the outcome. So once you do that, you start to build uh, a data package of evidence to support or refute the hypothesis. You then do animal studies, you test in animals. And then what we, we don't think that animal testing is, uh, I mean, it's important to do, but it's not where you really need to be. You really need to be in people because uh, you know mice are not people, rats are not people. And so really it's, you do the animal studies to sort of try to quickly get um, a signal, especially of safety, and then you rapidly want to get it into, into people. And so uh, we then form a company, and the company is formed by getting investors, and these are usually people who are venture capitalists who are trying to make money, and so they invest in your idea with hope that they'll get a return on their investment. Uh, and then you build that company up, and you recruit people to it to do all the aspects, including manufacturing, regulatory aspects, all those sorts of things. And you build a team of that, of that. So it's another team activity. And then ultimately you get in the clinic and you get clinicians and nurses and pharmacists to work together with you to begin to test your new ideas and your new therapies. And if it all goes well and you get through the, the various levels of testing that you have to do and it looks like it actually does work, uh, then it would, you would commercialize it, hopefully get approval from the FDA or Health Canada. But it's a long process, but it's exciting at the same time. And what about some barriers to this process? Because it's clearly a really, really long process. And as you mentioned, with the research, there are it's not straightforward. Are there, are there any other barriers that you've encountered in the past when it comes to this entire process of whiteboard to the clinic? Um, you know, the biggest barrier is always money. Uh, and so, you know, people in my position, I have, as I said, up to 20 people working in my lab, I have to pay their salaries. I have to pay for their mice. Mice cost a lot of money, but you'd be surprised how much they cost. I got to pay for all their supplies, which are very specialized. And the only way I can do that is through applying for grants and getting grants from either the government or from uh, benevolent organizations like Terry Fox or Canadian Cancer Society. There is no other source of money for research. So there's not like a way to, the hospital doesn't have money for that. This is just money that we have to bring in. So that's what I spend a lot of my time doing is trying to bring that money in. And it's extremely competitive. So, you know, there's a lot of people just like me across the country who are trying to get that money and the success rate's around 10%. So that means that 90% 90, 90 of the people don't get funded, which is just outrageously bad. 
and so I think that's the biggest obstacle to us advancing lots of discoveries to people where they need to be is we don't have enough money in the system to get all the smart people out there funded. And really it's a huge problem because uh, what, got, what politicians don't seem to recognize is the importance of science. And countries which fund their science really well have a much better economy than, sci than countries that don't fund their, their science as well. Because you don't know what the discovery is gonna be, but you know for sure you're gonna make a discovery and it's gonna have an impact on society. So uh, there's no question that funding is, slows everything down. And the real tragedy is, you know, we, I, I will meet lots of people, as you mentioned, that cancer is such a pervasive disease. And, you know, they'll say, why don't we have the answer yet? And, then, and the, the truth is because we don't support enough research to actually find it because it's a very complex disease. And, you know, it's a tough thing to have to say, but it's, it's reality in society. We'd rather spend more money, you know, on hockey tickets than, than making a donation. And so that has, has, a, it has an impact. And right now we're, we're going through this pandemic because we did not support science in the past and we're caught with our, you know, our pants down now when we need to have therapeutics quickly and so on. We don't even have the people in place to do our manufacturing. So this is a lesson society has yet to learn, unfortunately. And it certainly is the thing that's slowing down research is just not having the fuel to drive. We've got lots of smart people, but we just don't have the money to help keep them in Canada and to fund their research. Are there any sort of initiatives or advancements in this field? So um, getting people to stay in Canada, helping um, boost research and the funding for it, do you know any of that? Yeah, I mean, there are tremendous uh, uh, people working very hard to try to get more money for research all the time. There's a lot of uh, agencies in Canada trying to raise money for cancer research. Um, I think they need some more coordination to make that even more effective. Um, so there's lots of that happening. I think there's a number of us uh, who believe that we should think about a different way to commercialize, that commercializing to pay back investors maybe is not the best way to do it. Maybe we should do something like have companies, because I think companies are good. They, they have great discipline and rigor to them. But maybe we need to have companies whose bottom line is not how much investors are going to make at the end of the year, but rather how the product's going to be developed and how the people are going to be paid to paid the work there. So these are called nonprofit companies or not-for-profit companies, I should say. And you're not allowed to make a lot of profits. The way you do that is you have a very successful company. You put money back into the research and back into people. And an example of this would be a company called Nav Canada, Navigation Canada, which is responsible for air traffic controls across the country. And they're a not-for-profit company. So they do make a lot of money from the technology they develop, but it has to go back into pay their employees and do more research. And so Nav Canada is now leading the world in many respects in air traffic control technology. So I think we're thinking that something like that would be a good idea for, for biotherapeutics because currently, you know, you hear about these great discoveries and all, but it's a million dollars to get treated. And that's just outrageous. And that's because the companies feel they have to pay their investors big dividends or else they don't do well in the, in the, in the public markets. So I think we just have to have a mindset change in how to do things right for Canada. And now moving, it's a great answer. Thank you for that. And moving on, you mentioned a bit about COVID. Could you talk about how COVID has affected um, research around the world? What do you think the consequences of that will be um, in the cancer field? Yeah, so this has had a, a major impact on everyone because for several months we were shut down and not allowed to work. 
Uh, I was lucky in that my lab uh, works on the development of immunotherapies for cancer, and we were able to quickly pivot and develop immunotherapies for COVID. So my team has been able to really continue to work throughout the, the whole time, but many labs have had to shut down. Uh, the other thing is it's really effective supply chain. So some of the specialized products we get are made offshore and we just can't get them. So that slows things down. Uh, we're restricted in how we could access animal facilities and so on. So that, that had a really big impact. But I think it also, on the positive side, you know, the things we're learning now, we're, we're developing some, some vaccines for COVID in, in our group. And we're learning a lot during that process that we're going to apply to cancer research when this, when this gets resolved. So uh, it, it's sort of, you know, you, someone gives you lemon, you make lemonade sort of approach to things and say, look, you know, we're going to do what we can do right now. And, and we still have a focus on trying to cure cancer. But at the same time, we know that cancer patients are much more sensitive to COVID infections, SARS-CoV-2 infections than your average person on the street. So it's important for us now to get something to, to blunt that uh, pandemic so those people are protected. So, you know, sometimes you got to roll with it and, and that's sort of what we're doing. So it's been a problem for everybody, of course, but I think scientists are resourceful, if nothing else, and, and they're finding ways to work around these strategies and, and learn from them. Yeah, I mean, uh, a little bit off topic from COVID, but I think a question a lot of our listeners uh, will want to know is, what kind of experiences do you look in when you're recruiting new lab members and what kind of experience would you want out of maybe a high school or university student? Um, I don't know that we want anybody who's too experienced because we want to actually mold their brains to do what we want them to do. <laughs> so, but I mean, I, what I look for is in people is, you know, what, what do they've done? If they've done very well in school, then clearly they are bright and they work hard. So we're always looking for that. Uh, I, I often look to see as, as someone been involved in the, you know, in an organization or a sports team or something, because then they probably learned about teamwork. And as I mentioned, teamwork's really, really important, you know, that maybe they work as, maybe they are a musician and in an orchestra. Again, it's the same thing. So there's discipline, there's good work ethic. Um, you know, when I interview them, I just try to find out if they're interesting people and that's something. Uh, but certainly if they have signs of, of doing something teamwork wise, whether it's nothing to do with science at all, it's, you know, like I said, a sports team or a, or a, you know, a musician or whatever, that, that that's something that sort of tweaks my interest. Cause I, my team is very much got to work together. So I need bright people, hardworking people who like to collaborate. And so those are what we're looking for more than lab experience, because we don't want you to be contaminated by someone else's bad habits. We want to create the bad habits ourselves. So <laughs> it's really the way that we approach science that we're, we're looking for. Actually, uh, to add on to that, I think at our lab, we had a quote, you don't have to be crazy to be in our lab. Uh, we'll teach you how to be. Exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And um, our last question for today is you talk about the, the traits that you look for in, in students. What advice would you give to people who want to go into cancer research and research in general? Are there any tips or anything you've learned over your really long and successful career that you'd give to people who are just starting off? Yeah, I mean, you have to love what you do. You know, I, I really enjoy going to work every single day and it's because I've picked a career that I really love. And so it's not work for me. It's, I, I get paid. I'm, I feel like I'm really fortunate to be paid to do something that I love to do. So don't do something that you think you should do. Do something that you really want to do, an area of research, if, if that's what you want to do, that, that really tweaks your interest. So that, that's certainly one thing. I mean, getting good marks in school uh, is 
no question it makes your path easier because then it's easier for you to get a fellowship. It, it, it's just for all the wrong reasons, it's a real advantage. Unfortunately, I, I myself didn't do so good as an undergraduate. I actually had sort of crappy marks and I had to sort of really fight uphill to get uh, past undergraduate. But if, if you had good marks as an undergraduate, that is really a, a, a benefit for sure. So if you have, uh, you know, if you can put that little extra effort in to, to do better in any course or in all your courses, it, it's only going to serve you down the road. So, you know, I, for instance, I hated physical chemistry uh, and I don't do any physical chemistry, but had I done better in it, it would have helped me out because I would have got studentships or awards, which would have made it easier for me to go where I wanted to go. And I think the other thing is to not be afraid to, you know, to go and try new experiences elsewhere. So I trained in, in the UK for a while. I encourage my students to go and train around the world. That's a great opportunity to learn different ways of doing science. Certainly in the UK, they do science much different than we do in North America. So I think it's important to move around and, and try new experiences and, and new places. I think that's a good note to end off on. Uh, that's, that's everything we've got for today. I just wanna thank you again, Dr. Bell, for joining us. We do really appreciate you coming on to the podcast. Great. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it, guys. As for you, our listeners, we hope that you enjoyed our second episode and gained a lot of insight into the world of cancer research. And thanks a lot for tuning in and stay tuned for our next podcast in two weeks, which is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Have a great day, everyone.